20 seconds. 15 seconds. Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. That crowd enthusiasm is captured in the concert film Justin Timberlake Plus the Tennessee Kids that had its world premiere last week at the Toronto International Film Festival and will soon come to Netflix. The director is Jonathan Demme. He was on episode six of Pure Nonfiction talking about his portrait films like The Agronomist and Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains. My biggest um, asset as a filmmaker has always been my enthusiasm. Uh Uh, (laughs) So that's what I got to go by. On this episode, I talk with Demi again, only this time we focus on his performance documentaries with The Talking Heads, Neil Young, and Justin Timberlake. If you're in New York City this fall, I'll be hosting a retrospective of Demi's documentaries, both performance and portrait films, as part of my screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, at IFC Center. It begins on Tuesday, September 27th, with a screening of Stop Making Sense. I interviewed Jonathan at TIFF.com conference on September 13th in front of a live audience. I asked how he came to direct Stop Making Sense. Right time, right place syndrome. That was that band at that moment in time. And luckily, we got to film them. And as a footnote, um, they never played together again. That was, that was it. They made one more album. They never toured again. So we kind of like, ah, we got there just in time. Before that film, had you filmed music before? I mean, you had made you had some bunch of fiction films under your belt, but was music new? I, I had not done a performance film at all. I had, whenever possible, tried to get a, a, a live music component into um, a film. Like if you're going to have a, like I'd write a, I, don't know, I was doing Roger Corman movies, movies, so I'd write in a bar scene. Hmm and say there's a crazy band playing there. <laughs> and then we go to Fayetteville, Arkansas and find a band. Um, and, and stuff like that, but no. Uh, and the, you know, the reason I- and did, do you, did you do that because you love music and you just thought that would bring energy to a scene or other reasons than that? I did it because of my obsession with music and also because, yeah, I, was, I just felt this is, this is, it's commercial to have some cool music going on in your movie. Uh, as a moviegoer, I respond to that. And I just uh, you know, felt, felt, yeah, this is, this is how we enrich a sequence, to have a, like a, a strong band playing. And, and what happened with uh, the reason Stop Making Sense happened was that I, um, I went to a performance, I guess it was late in 1983, of the Talking Heads, a New York band. I'm a New York guy. I happened to be in, in California working um, and getting my ass kicked by Warner Brothers. Um, and we go to this concert and my reaction after about, and I knew the heads, and I'd seen them play in Central Park and CBGBs, I knew the band, but I hadn't seen that, that tour. So as and I- knew them personally? No, no, no. Yeah. Um, 
And as I watched that particular show, um, I was like, wow, this is really like a movie just waiting to be filmed. Look at this lighting. Look at these characters David does. Look at this great band. And I also thought there was a sense in, in that particular show of some kind of like an implied narrative, hmm. that there was some kind of journey David Byrne was personifying as he went from song to song. So, um, so Gary Getzman, uh, my partner, and also my, uh, you know, my, well, uh, he's partners with Tom Hanks and Playtone Productions now because Tom stole Gary from me <laughs> after Philadelphia. But um, Gary and I were partnered on many films, including Stop Making Sense, and Gary also produced um, Justin Timberlake. This is kind of a reunion for us. So um, we just went to Warner Brothers, um, which was the label that the heads were on, and, and um, got a talk with David, and David came and we talked for a while and we pitched him on this idea of filming it. Um, he said, he said because I'm like in, so in awe of David Byrne in 1983, the coolest, shyest, coolest person on the planet, and I tell him, yeah, that's what we would do, and David goes like, well, if we do this movie, what will make it different from all the other concerts that have been made? And I was like, oh, God, he's got me. <laughs> like, <laughs> so then I was like, I said, what the hell? All I can say is, David, the music you know, on stage is going to be talking heads, and it's going to be directed by me. Beyond that, I can't tell you. And he's like, hmm, okay. And <laughs> the, 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 the reason I, I knew we had him um, was that, you know, David put so much work into the lighting aspect of that. He, he had done drawings for the, all this extraordinary monochrome dimension. And on the road, he knew that, that the audience was never seeing what he saw in his head, because in these venues, there'd be the clock and the lights and stuff, so, so that you weren't getting the pure, pure lighting scheme. So um, on film, David knew that finally his vision, his lighting vision, would be fulfilled. And, um, and then when, when I reached out to Jordan Cronenweth, uh, the DP of Blade Runner and many other, one of our most superb cameramen ever, uh, the late, great Jordan Cronenweth, um, David and Jordan really teamed up and built, redesigned David's thing a little bit and just like did that. I had, I, and I was just concerned about how to film it, you know. So when, when you and I, when you first brought me uh, to see the Justin Timberlake film in, in the spring, I was kind of surprised to, to hear you say that Justin Timberlake is such an admirer of the Stop Making Sense movie that he thought of you to, to do this film. Did I have that mm -hmm. basically right? Mm -hmm. And I think when you see the Justin Timberlake movie, you're, even though you don't necessarily think of Justin Timberlake and talking heads on the, the, uh, the same musical continuum, You'll you'll see a lot of you'll you'll see that the staging is on a continuum. That there is incredible attention to to presentation, to lighting that those two performances share. Definitely, and in fact, that shot that that um, ended there, where Dave, uh, where Justin emerges up on the stage finally, it's a huge shadow. It's the big suit. I've never asked, tonight I'm gonna ask him, it's like, dude, was that an homage? <laughs> um, and there's other certain things, like the little dance he does with his mic He does with the microphone and, that kind of yeah. reminds you of David Byrne's dance with the, yeah. the lamp stand and yeah. stop making sense. Making it all his own, you mm -hmm. know. Um, 
So yeah, the, uh, the first night that I, I learned one of my biggest lessons um, in shooting performance, the first night of Stop Making Sense, which we shot at the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard in, uh, in Los Angeles. And um, so, you know, we had, mm, let's say eight cameras, something like that. Good amount of cameras, great shooters. And uh, the lighting was all set up. And I, you know, my assumption was that, you know, you, you're going to be filming audience reactions and what have you. So the first night comes on, and Jordan put, uh, like this probably, I don't know, like, maybe like this, maybe a little brighter than this, a little ambient onto the audience so that the camera that was shooting the audience would get a, a good image of it. And the show tanked. It never caught fire. Um, the audience wasn't really responding. The band got sloppy. They weren't having fun. And the one time I've ever seen David Byrne mad was at the end of that show. He came, came running and he says, you can't ever have those lights on the audience. You know, we had three more nights. We, it was a four-night thing. You can't, like that. The audience was so self-conscious. They weren't giving us anything. Mm, fuck us up. Blah, 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 blah. So I was like, wow, that's an extraordinary thing to know about. Hmm. So not a... Maybe bring the house lights down. No, no, no. This... No, no, this is a, this is a good crowd. We're, ha we're happening here. It's all right. Um, so, so kind of two things happened. One... I never wasted a camera on the audience again for a music film. Um, and let's face it, you know, something more interesting has got to be going on on stage than what's going on out there. Nothing out there can, can be as contributive to a... The, and also, so we didn't, we just like went black, we didn't shoot the audience, and we're like, we don't want the audience. It, it, towards the end, some lights came up, and that was cool. But it was, I, that's when I kind of got this feeling like, you know, when you do performance films, you really want to feel, as a moviegoer, that this film was made for me. I am the primary mm. recipient of this film. And if you start seeing these people rocking out in the audience, then you start going like, oh, I wish I had been there. You know, mm. look at that. Because, you know, as hard as we try, and I think it's a great, noble, wonderful effort, you know, I don't believe when it comes to music and, and even theater, I mean, it's so hard for, for, for film, for images on film and sound coming through speakers to compete with being in the room hmm. with real people playing real music or actors really acting in that room with you and the spit coming out. You know, it's just like, wow. So we, we try to compete with that. We try to justify that we're going to take that live thing and rechannel it for movie audiences. So we have the benefit of being able to go in close and get different perspectives, become a roving best seat in the house. Um, you know, picking up though on what you just said about the audience, I'm gonna take one tangent, because I by and large agree with you that it's not that interesting to watch crowds. However, on Friday, we're showing this Rolling Stones concert documentary about the Rolling Stones touring Latin America. Mm. And I'm sure when people heard of that film, as I did when I heard of it, I thought, Really, is there another Rolling Stones documentary to be made? But in this case, in Latin America, some of the most exciting things that are happening are in the mm. crowds because you see, so the film culminates in Havana where they've never appeared before. Mm. It's a free concert. And when you see the enthusiasm of those crowds, like you feel what 
that band means. That's got to be amazing. You feel what the music means. Yeah. So. And, and Tom, that said, and that said, actually, Justin Timberlake uh, plus the Tennessee Kids, the audience, you see the audience quite a bit. Um, and so that becomes, in, in my work, the exception that, that makes the rule. Because Justin has like this particular relationship with the audience. And um, the audience in this film um, became kind of a character. Um, so um, oddly, I, who never uh, like, like to film audiences, wind up with a, a new movie that has a lot of audience in it. And I'm really thrilled by that dimension. Keep learning, baby. Let me, so you've done three films with Neil Young. We've shown at least two of them here. How did that collaboration begin? Well, the slightly longer version or the... The medium version. Uh, the medium version, okay. So um, I was, uh, we were making Philadelphia. Um, we we're in the cutting room in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't make Philadelphia for, to be seen by liberals and, and, and people who were already concerned about, about what was going on um, with AIDS and homophobia. We made that movie to be seen by people we wanted to reach and, and minds we wanted to change and hearts we wanted to affect. So... You know, we're, we're cutting the movie together, and I'm like, I've got such a great idea. We're going to reach out to Neil Young and see if Neil Young will do like a Southern man anthem to start this movie, because that will send such a strong, reassuring message to, you know, like testosterone-fueled men, which is our target audience. They're <laughs> like, wait, well, Neil's down with it, you know. So um, we, 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 we sent Neil... Uh, the, uh, I called up his manager, the, the, the brilliant Elliot Roberts, and said, yeah, okay, send us a tape of the movie, send it in the movie. And Elliot calls back right away and says, like, Neil likes the film. He's wanted to make a statement about the Oh, and by the way, when I sent it to him, um, Southern Man was scoring the, the opening scene as a temp uh -huh. uh, just to show, you know? So, so then um, a week later, uh, this audio cassette comes back, and it's Neil's song for Philadelphia. And um, I got in the car, which you always have to do to hear an important song in your life for the first time. You have to be driving around. <laughs> so my wife and I got in the car, pop, popped it in and drive around, and here's this heartbreaking um, Philadelphia song. City of brotherly love, place I call Yes, I'm crying by the end, but, but I'm also like, this will be great at the end, <laughs> but we still need the, you know, the, 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 the thing up front. So then, I, I, I knew Bruce Springsteen, I had, had worked with him on a, on a video, and I got in touch with, with uh, the boss. I told him what I've just been telling you guys um, about the Neil Young thing, so I'm saying, so like, would you consider maybe like looking at the movie and seeing if you might give us a song, a rousing song to, to open the picture with? And he goes like, yeah, send it over, you know? So, now, we, when you sent it to, to Springsteen, did it have Southern Man as a temp It track still okay. had Southern Man, absolutely. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. 
Um, <laughs> I probably should know, but anyway, yeah. Born to Run, or yeah. Uh, and and we we put um, the Neil song at the end, which oh my God, just transformed the end of that movie. Unbelievable. So send it off, and then I get a phone call a couple of days later. You know, Bruce is interested. He has an idea. He's going to send it to you. It's, it's John Landau calling. So I was like, great. So then a newt tape comes on and we get in the car and slap it in and it's this amazing song Streets of Philadelphia Summer flexion in a window and no mild face oh brother gonna leave me wasting away the streets of Philadelphia oh, this is so beautiful but honey it's not the route. And Joanne said to me, this is like so cool, and uh, Joanne's not a movie person. Uh, Joanne's a painter and a sculptor and, and a various things. But she goes like, you know, it seems like, like these people trust your film more than you do. Hmm. Why don't you just shut up about Southern Man? <laughs> You've got these two great songs, so that's what happened. <laughs> Thank you. Later, Neil Young asked Demi to direct the film Greendale, based on an album of songs set in rural California. But the timing wasn't right, so Young directed himself. Then their paths crossed again. After I did Mentoring Candidate, that was for me the, the, the death of studio movies for me. I never wanted to do that again. It cost an enormous amount of money to make, colossal amount of money. It, it came in on budget, and it was a subject of tremendous disputes between the producer and the studio, and me and the movie were caught kind of in the middle of it. It turned out the way I wanted it to, I had final cut, and I never wanted to do that again. So I was like, you know what, I'm going on a long sabbatical. Uh, so I live in, in uh, this little town on the Hudson River called Nyack, so I've got my little office in Nyack, and I just started like having this wonderful life, you know? And about a year later, I, I found myself starting to itch to want to um, like shoot something. Hmm. And I was like, I think I'm going to call up Neil Young <laughs> and see what he's got going on. I had seen his Greendale by then, because they, they went ahead and shot and stuff. It was great. So I was like, so Neil, da, da, da. And he said, listen, I'm just you know, finishing this album called Prairie Wind. And he told me he had had an aneurysm, and uh, it could have been fatal, and he's written all these introspective songs, and he said, maybe we could do something with, with the, this new body of music. He said, I think it's one of the better think, things I've done in a long time. So I said, well, can I hear it? So he sent me the songs, and they were great. So anyway, we, we start talking on the phone. The songs were amazing. And it's like, well, maybe we should do it out on the great Canadian plains, and maybe we should do da 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 And then what happened through conversation was the idea that let's do it because um, let's, let's turn this into kind of like a tribute to, to Nashville um, and, and to kind of certain kinds of music, which Neil loves so much and I love so much. So what it turned into was, let's do, let's, let's do a love letter to like the Grand Ole Opry style of presenting music to an audience, and that will be our film. It's
So we filmed that uh, on two nights, and that was so exciting because no one in the audience, the, the record hadn't come out yet. So we were actually debuting a, a, a new body of work by a major composer. And that's an entirely different vibe, right? I mean, when, when you're playing hits, you're getting one kind of audience reaction. Totally, yeah. totally. Um, you know, you have to trust that, these song, that the audience is going to love these songs as much as you do, right. and they're going to respond the way David Byrne pointed out they need to respond in order to feed the people on stage. And I was, I was like, that was so exciting down there. And I, there was even a thing of like, I thought, wow, this must have been like, you know, in like the, in centuries gone by, there'd be a new work by a composer. No one had ever heard it before. They came and there it was. So we got to do that in Nashville. And um, after two, two nights, we had two great nights, and then the next morning I woke up and I was like, oh God, we're not gonna do that anymore? <laughs> we put all that work into the, we rehearsed for weeks, you know, uh, down in Nashville, planning the camera shots. Uh, oh, just all kinds of, I was like, oh my God, it's over. And again, my wife, who was the sage in my life, was like, honey, you filmed it, so you can now go cut it and you'll see it as much as you want forever and ever. Uh, so, um, and inside that, that film was produced by Alona Hertzberg, um, Canadian producer, one of the great producers of all time, who I keep trying to work with again and again. We did Rachel Getting Married together, and, and Alona's often too busy to, to get. Well, I wonder, since there's a lot of filmmakers in the audience, uh, if you have any kind of general advice for performance films. Uh... Yeah, um, I mean, I, I have... Um, evolved, I've touched on a little bit, but a very, very simple formula. Um, uh, one is ignore the audience. Don't waste a shot on the audience. Number two is get as many cameras as you can. Um, not so they start limiting. You don't want to have, you know, like, like you compromise your angles. Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't want to, yeah. But, but have as much cameras, because when you get in the cutting room, you're going to want to, Get, and make sure that every shot is really, that you've got a terrific shooter on, on the eyepiece, so that you've got a composition that's strong, and so that that shot can play for a long time. That's another part of my bottom line formula, is like, don't cut, try not to cut. Hmm. Um, uh, latch onto a shot that's working, and, and don't get sucked into that artificial energy of trying to pump things up by cutting on the beat and stuff like that. You can do that once in a while for the fun of it in a piece, but, but let, the, let the audience be with the singer, the piano player, let them be there with them. Um, and um, so, you know, that's kind of it. That's really kind of it. N no audience, as many cameras as you can afford, and don't want to put it together, just don't cut someone. We, the way we cut um, uh, Neil Young, Heart of Gold was like, this is me being funny at the time. So I go into to, uh, uh, the cutting room on the first day, and Andy Keir, a wonderful New York editor, is in the cutting room ready to go to work. I said, okay, Andy, um, I'd like to see your first cut at about four this afternoon. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. I said, no, oh, no, I'm serious. Take, take um, the close-ups and just, just cut the close-ups together. And then we'll start watching this movie and decide when it's worth going to something other than an amazing close-up of Neil Young singing his songs. And in this way, we built, um, built our narrative. In the Justin Timberlake uh, film, 
I have memories of, of seeing little kind of mini stories being told about other people in the band. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Justin's at the center, but every once in a while we'll get, you know, maybe just some seconds, but enough time with the side players that you get into that personality. Yes, thank you, and I left that out. Maybe that's why you you brought that up, Tom. That's the other thing, you've gotta have those connective angles, I think, which, which, so you you get the gold of somebody doing whatever they're doing, and like shooting a look to somebody over here, and we've got them both in the shot. You know, that's that's the magic, that's really phenomenal glue. And um, that is certainly one of the reasons that Justin reached out because of sense, because he saw that and stopped making sense, and he loves his band. I want to thank Jonathan Demi for talking to me, and thanks to TIFF Documentary Program Associate Dorota Leck for helping to organize Doc Conference. If you're in New York City this fall, get yourself to IFC Center on a Tuesday night for our retrospective of Jonathan Demi with the films Stop Making Sense, Swimming to Cambodia, the Agronomist, Neil Young, Heart of Gold, I'm Carolyn Parker, and Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains, playing one week before the presidential election. It all begins on Tuesday, September 27th with Stop Making Sense. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media handlers, Jordan Smith, Alana Schreiber, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe for free on iTunes. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.